may I introduce you, please, to the writer and executive producer, Craig Mazin. Then we have... <laughs> actors from the series. We have Stellan Skarsgård, Emily Watson, Jared Harris, and the director, Johan Lopez. Craig, let's start with you. All right. Le can you tell me a little bit about the genesis for this? Because, of course, we all think we know a bit about Chernobyl, but... Perhaps we don't know so much. That's pretty much how it started for me. I kind of knew something about Chernobyl, but I didn't know much. I knew that it exploded. And I often say to people, if, if you ask someone what happened to the Titanic, they will tell you it sank. And if you said, well, how did it sink? They will tell you it hit an iceberg. And that works halfway for Chernobyl. You'll say, what happened at Chernobyl? It blew up. How did it blow up? Hmm. And it occurred to me, uh, I was just reading an article about it, and it occurred to me that that's a strange gap to have in my knowledge. So I just started reading. and. The more I read, the more shocked I was. The explosion is not at all the story. The story is, in fact, about how it came to happen and the remarkable acts of courage, bravery, and sacrifice that were required because of it. It's about a system that is corrupt. It is about uh, sort of the worst that humans can do, but it's also about the best um, uh, that humans can do uh, individually. And so that was it. I just started reading. I became obsessed, and off we went. And am I right in thinking that it actually started with something as simple as a Google search? Yeah. No, actually, no. You know what? Oh, my gosh. This is the one thing that didn't start with a Google search <laughs> since the year 1997. Um, I was reading an article in the New York okay. Times okay. in the paper. Uh, not anymore. I don't do that anymore. That's ridiculous. But uh, no, I was reading an article about the, um, the new containment unit, which is now in place over Chernobyl. It used to be the sarcophagus. Probably a lot of people have heard of that. It's big. Uh, ugly concrete thing that the Soviets put in place as quickly as they could. Uh, and then this came and replaced it, and so they were talking about how they constructed it, and I just started reading about it then. And let's talk about some of the, the characters, because most of them are based on real-life people. We'll come to one who isn't. Um, but, Stellan, should we start with, with you? Let's talk about Shabina. So he wasn't a scientist, as we know. He was brought on for a different reason. Can you tell me a little bit about his, his journey and what he goes on to do? Well, he was, uh, he was a minister in the government. And he got the pretty ungraceful uh, uh, job to, to take care of the cleanup and everything. And already, whether well, they didn't know it was that bad. Mm -hmm. uh, and he comes in as a man of power, and he's confronted with Jared's character, who is the scientist who knows all about it. And that confrontation takes him to, to an un other understanding of of not only the system, but also what actually happened there and what had to be done. He really ends up kind of going against the grain, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He, uh, he went for the truth for once. Mm. He's a sort of notorious yeller, uh, Boris Shabin, a big screamer. Um, <laughs> it's sort of his reputation. You know, he would, you would send him in to scream things into action. And, and Stellan did an incredible job, I thought, of just starting this character off in this way where you, you are so intimidated by him, and he seems so in charge. And then to watch what happens to him as he becomes confronted with reality, I thought it was just a, a, a remarkable performance, if I may say so. I'm next to you. I, you I, may say yeah, so, I, but I, not in public. <laughs> should we? Can I say it later? I'll say it later. It's very good. He's, he's very good. Uh, Stellan, what did you know about Chernobyl beforehand, and how much research did you need to do around your character? Uh, well, I knew, knew a lot about it. I mean, Sweden was the first country to to recognize that something had happened there. It was a Swedish nuclear plant that, that found radiation that was, could be traced back to, to the fuel of 
Chernobyl. So, and uh, the wind came in over Sweden and we couldn't eat, eat reindeer for a couple of years and you should be really careful with mushrooms and stuff. So it had an impact uh, there as well as here and in Ireland as well. Um, so I was pretty familiar with it, but I wasn't familiar with what I found really interesting in this story is that it describes how uh, a system that considers itself perfect is prone to, to start hiding uh, truths that are not comfortable, and that is always lethal. It could be the, the Soviet system, or it could be a, a religious ideology, or anything that is supposed to be perfect is dangerous. Emily, your character, Homyuk, is not a real character, but she is based on an amalgamation of real characters. Can you tell me a little bit about what she represents? Uh, well, Craig describes her as a character who is um, being created in tribute to many of the scientists who were involved in the search for the truth and, and the aftermath of the accident. Mm. Um, to me, she is, she's, I, I, to me, she's a truth ninja. She's, she's given the job when, when the guys are clearing up the mess, um, Legasov sends her off to, to, in, on a hunt for, for, for information. And she starts hitting, after a while, starts hitting brick walls. Um, and it's dangerous. Um, and I think, you know, that it, it, I, loved, I loved her because she was a person who took on the system and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be afraid. I am going to push until this gets through, um, and I, I, it was great fun to play and play, play somebody so tough. Yeah. And you know, you, she's from Belarus, and you have you, you Wikipedia Belarus for about two and a half seconds, and you realize it was probably the worst place on the planet to be in the mid 20th century. Um, the the extinction of the population was was just astonishing, coming from the east and the west and the east. Um, and she would have been a child at that time, so. A people with incredible strength and survival and toughness, and that was fun to do as well. Just someone who's tough and just steams in there and doesn't take any shit. And in terms of putting together that character, of course, you've got quite extraordinary script to draw on. But did you also look at any research of other scientists who who it is based on? Um, no, not really. I. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> you told I mean, us. <laughs> we, we had, there were, there was a lot of um, research material on this. Craig is like a. No. The, the, the first thing I, the first That's thing it. I said to Craig, I wrote to him after I read the script and said, I am in awe of the size of your brain. Um, oh, but <laughs> brain. brain. <laughs> <laughs> I that. that I get. Um, I, there, there was, to me, the, the research was in, in terms of the poetic and the emotional. There were some really extraordinary works. There's a book called Prayer for Chernobyl, which is um, really a kind of spiritual treatise on the event, um, which I think is was a powerful inspiration to Greg. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of went off on a few tangents of my own with that. You know, one thing that I really appreciated about what Emily did was we, you know, this character has what, what they refer to as a high level of disagreeability. That doesn't mean that she's disagreeable. It means that she's willing to disagree with everyone. If 100 people say it's obviously this, she has no problem saying, no, it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and that requires a certain kind of sealiness, uh, just a, 
an absolute dedication to the truth without any concern for other people's feelings or how you might go over or popularity or in the case of working inside the Soviet Union, your own freedom. And uh, in real life, Emily is one of the most lovely, sweet people you would ever meet. And I was kind of curious, like, how is this going to work? Oh, and then, oh my god, <laughs> she just shows up on day one, you're like, mm, okay. <laughs> she gets it. I mean, she, she, she managed to, to pull that through uh, in, in the most remarkable way. I suppose you will have such a great responsibility as well to the survivors, to the victims, to make sure that you get those characters so spot on. I think Johan had a, in the way that he directed us, he was very clear that he wanted us to find something in our center of gravity, really, that was... Soviet. Soviet, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Johan sure. does know how to speak English, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Johan, before we come to you, I just want to uh, finish, finish off the characters, if I may. So, so Gerard, uh, Gerard, tell me a little bit about Legasov. So, of course, he again is a real character uh, who, who met an untimely end, as we have already seen. Um, tell me a little bit about your approach to him. Legasov is he's a real person. Um, he, in this, he's the sort of Cassandra of the story in that he, he sees, he understands what, <clears throat> what the dangers are and how bad it can go if, uh, if they don't get on top of it quickly. Um, he's also responsible with trying to figure out how you um, contain this event that's occurred that's, no one's, everyone's known it's, it could happen, but no one's planned for what to do if it does happen. Um, but um, but you know, and the and the, the, the real Legasov, um, uh, he, he suffers the same fate. Uh, you know, our, our, our Legasov is he's more structured towards our narrative and our story, and, and um, he, he sort of plays off of uh, of Stellan's characters. So there's this the, the main relationship that he has in the story is this. Um, they have this uh, um, you know, frosty relationship. They have an antagonistic relationship in the beginning, but they, they learn to, to rely on one another and trust one another, and their friendship becomes one of the, sort of the spines of the whole story. Yeah. Johan, when this extraordinary script lands on your desk, I suppose your, your challenge is it's epic, it's huge. We've got these big set pieces, and yet it is about humanity, it's about individual stories, and so you want those little moments as well. So can you talk us through a little bit about how you kind of approached that and how you saw that vision? Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think the epic sort of uh, takeaway was immediate at all. I think it was always about uh, the humans in there. And I think for, for, for me, the most important aspect was to to sort of disperse of all, sort of, all, I can't say, but as many filters as ever possible and to make it sort of authentic and, you know, to some extent experiential rather than being sort of a, a dramatization of, of a real event, but rather to, you know, to make an effort of, of placing us there to some extent and, and experiencing it. And that already there, I think, kind of also, takes away from some of the epicness of it, but rather, uh, you know, the deep, profound feeling of actually, you know, encountering these things. Uh, <coughs> we, we have a lot of characters in here. We, you know, there's a lot of small but very important parts along the way who all are, you know, really, really important on, on sort of depicting a certain angle of everything that's going on. And, you know, that's uh, something that's also been the whole 
whole journey is to try to, well, I mean, it's already there on paper, of course, but it's, it's really interesting to, to deal with something that, that uh, sort of depicts this thing from so many different little angles and nooks and crannies and all of that, you know. Isn't there about 130 actors in it or something? I think there's a 104 speaking roles in there, all, all in all, you know. Uh, uh, so all there, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, all good. 102, 102 of them. 102. Pretty good. We fired two? Yeah, two of them had to go. <laughs> but you know, Johan did this thing that's kind of miraculous. I, I don't know how he, how he did it. I mean, it's, I'm the benef we we're all the beneficiary of it. I mean, he, the, the, because he'll downplay this epic aspect and then you watch that evacuation and it's just, you know, shocking and breathtaking and, and absolutely epic and beautiful. He was able to do these things all the time, but then also with a kind of remarkable effortlessness, he would, he would get in close, so you have you know, Jared portraying this character of remarkable intelligence. And it's easy to miss that, I think, sometimes, if your camera just sort of glides by these things. But he was there, he sat with him, and you see it come through. The, the, the performance that, that Jared gave, and you know, it just honestly gets better every time. I mean, I have to tell you, it gets better every time I watch it. And, and Johan knows how to get in there inside of that in the most beautiful way, and then put himself on a roof and make that look beautiful. I honestly don't. I don't know. It's a good thing I don't know how you do it. Because if I knew how, if I knew how you do it, I, I would do it. But I don't know. I know. Do it. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I can't do it at all. Not even close. To Let, let's talk a little about those sort of big set pieces because you know, I'm sure there would have been a, a small amount of post production. But I guess what people here wouldn't realise is that actually you demolished a building. You know that the rubble was moved around. It was all authentic, right? I mean, it's, I think it's really important for us to mention now. You know, the the, the group of people who was involved in this. You know, we, we have Jakob Pirus here, my DUP, phenomenal young man. Where are Jakob? Hands up. There he is. There he is. <laughs> and, uh, Luke Fowler, production designer, unfortunately couldn't be here. This young little fellow we, uh, who's extraordinary and, you know, it was first experience for me to work with him. We have Odile Dix Miro, costumes. Costumes. Know. I mean, and just so people know, that's and then, like, and Daniel that's Parker, all real. And Daniel, Daniel Parker, Parker yeah, who, who did, did makeup, uh, which, I mean... You know, that, that his job, you know, by the episode gets more and more, you know, incredible. So, I mean, you, you, you have to wait till episode three to really get a sense of, the, of his extraordinary work. So I just, I just wanted to stick my head in and say Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, Craig, you, I just heard you mention the costumes there. I mean, that is an extraordinary thing. Do you want to talk to the audience through what happened with the costume? Well, Odile, um, and I'll say this actually, I'll, I'll couple Daniel and Luke in as well, because the three of them were kind of essential to that background work and prep. They, they shared my obsession and Johan's obsession with accuracy, historical accuracy. So that meant for Odile, sometimes going so far that we'd have to say, well, okay, but Odile, that's not gonna, <laughs> we, can't, we can't tell our show now because of that. You know, there are certain things where like, we had to like occasionally negotiate with her because she was so ferocious about accuracy. And when I look at that, I just, I'm amazed because she went and her staff went and gathered up actual period clothing from all over Eastern Europe, thousands of boots that were designed to match exactly, I mean, we were a little lucky in that the Soviets would occasionally make it like boot, you know? So we didn't have to worry about like, well, which boot. kind of Soviet boot? Boot, you know, um, helmet. But uh, she she did this. She would she would clothe thousands of people. It, it was mind blowing. And then Daniel had to become almost a physician because it wasn't enough to say, well, 
someone has, is experiencing the effect of radiation. There are levels to it. He came up with these stages and then substages and stages inside of stages. And then time would, the, the, the spreadsheet to keep track of it alone before his artistry was then put into place. And then of course Luke is transforming these places into Soviet period 1980s. And we shot in Lithuania, which was an incredible experience. And the Lithuanians were amazing. And they kind of gave you a great head start. But still, they've come, so, I mean, they're part of Europe. They've come a long, long way. And so some of it was about going backwards and peeling things away. Um, we could not have done it without all of them. And then Jakob's incredible photography is just mind-blowing every time I see it. It's just remarkable. Jared, you, you are the, one of the people who went through the, the prosthetics and the radiation aging process. And, and that was very, again, very authentic, wasn't it? A lot of research went into that. Uh, Adam Nagata's had it uh, uh, worst of all. I mean, the, the, the process that they put his character through is... Uh, yeah. Yeah. was really, really, really grueling. He's um, still in makeup. Yeah, he's still in makeup. Was there any yeah. specific contact lenses put in even, or something to do with your eyes? I uh, can't remember. I can't think you did for it. that, for did the I? first thing, yeah? Yeah, I, think so. I can't remember. That was, I think it was the first week, so. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then again, we had three different stages of the, uh, of his, uh, his sort of degradation, but um, yeah. Uh, but um, but the, the that the story of the the radiation poisoning was was told uh, a lot more through um, those initial people you see in episode one and and where their story goes. When by the time my character goes to interview the people who were there on the day in the hospital, yeah, they've lost most of their skin mm -hmm. and it's really a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, Sorry. It's pretty gruesome. What, to the, to the three of you, what did you learn about Chernobyl that you most took away with you, that, that most surprised you? Because as Craig said earlier, we think we know about it and actually, actually we, we Could don't. Could have been so much worse. Yes, in terms of the spread, in terms of, mm. yeah. Do you think that's something that we don't really recognise? Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I hope that people will after they watch after the show. This, yes, of I hope that people understand just how a handful of human beings and then hundreds of thousands of human beings gave of themselves for all of us, all of us, Europe, uh, North America, everywhere, really. Um, and telling their stories is, is um, actually one of the great joys of this. It, it doesn't, there's not a happy ending for all of them, obviously, but for some of them, strangely, it works out better than we would have thought. So I don't want anyone to leave here thinking, well, this is all just Shakespeare, and at the end, everyone's dead. <laughs> uh, it is, once again, I have failed uh, to write Shakespeare. <laughs> well, I guess we've a, already seen in episode two a talk of how much worse it could have been, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and the thing about this show is that it repeatedly gets worse. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way, yeah. yeah. Stellan, how about for you? Was there a, a particular takeaway for you? Was there a, a fact that you didn't know about or, or something that you took away? Well, I've, I've told you about that. I, I did not know about the process and, and how, how the system obstructed every way of, of, of getting the job done quickly and safely. I don't know what it takes. I mean, in 1980, we had a referendum in Sweden 
about uh, nuclear power, like you had a referendum. Oh, no, Brexit. no, 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 But I can tell you, uh, I, I voted yeah. against uh, mm. nuclear power back then, and we still have nuclear power, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not, uh, but today, I'm, 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 my feelings are very mixed, because, because we are burning fossil at a speed now that makes, uh, the question is not, how dangerous every single thing is. It's what are we gonna die from first, I would say. That is pretty Swedish right there. I, I have come to really love the Swedes. They, they put everything in this beautiful perspective. You know, I had a conversation with somebody earlier about would Brexit come up, and I said, honestly, it just comes up no matter what you're talking about. So there we go, it, it came up. I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> I know it's not my fault, but I'm just sorry. I think there's a direct relation, really. It's about, you know, control of truth and control of information, and that's involved in everything we're doing right now. Bravo. Yeah. No, that's... But in, but in a more positive note, also, it does tell you something about courage, doesn't it, and human nature, and actually the fact that there are an awful lot of courageous people out there who are willing to put their lives on the line for each other. I, I would also say, because that's something I thought a lot about, you know, during this experience, it's like... It's a difference maybe between courage and some form of purpose, actually, you know. I, I, I really felt that, you know, in our lives of this, this, this frolicking of making films and all that kind of stuff, you know, you, you, you go through the, some of these characters' journeys and you understand that, you know, in Legasov's case, very much in Legasov's and Komyuk's case, there's this sort of very, very deep purpose. And, and then I started thinking about, you know, how how important and relevant it is to sort of feel purposeful, to be honest, on a on a on a massively big scale. So I don't think I don't think Legasso didn't even think about courage. You know, I think it was more about this has to be, this must be done, this has to be done, right. which Stellan at some point also says. Yeah. You know, in the, in the show. Yes, absolutely. Craig, do we even know to this day? exactly how many people died, were affected. What do those figures tell us? What do we know? It's, it, we don't. We can Well, guess. we have the Soviet number. The Soviet number is 31. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> uh, the, there are estimates all over the place. It's difficult because, of course, the Soviets did not keep records, or if they did, they got rid of them or didn't share them. And then there's a question of, did you die because of Chernobyl, or did Chernobyl shorten your life? So did you half die because of Chernobyl and half die because of your own heart disease? Uh, it's difficult to figure out. The best estimates will put the number somewhere in the many tens of thousands. Uh, there are estimates up to a million. Uh, there is a book out right now uh, that is making the argument that, that the number has been grossly underestimated and that it probably is closer to a million. Um, I've tried very much to not, uh, if I have a choice between going for something that sounds more dramatic or something that sounds less dramatic, I actually have tried to opt for less. Because I think that the what is dramatic about Chernobyl doesn't need extra. So I, I've just kind of tried to, believe it or not, this is the restrained version uh, of what actually happened there. Because there are some accounts where it gets even worse. Uh, but there's no question that it, it, it took an enormous number of lives. And it also shortened an enormous number of lives, particularly in the case of children. Yeah. Uh, the, the rates of, of thyroid cancer in particular skyrocketed in Belarus and Ukraine shortly after. Yeah, the, the scene in which the children are still playing outside as they're talking about the fact that the German kids are being kept inside is, and that's is really, very powerful. That, yeah. is, that, that was exactly what was happening, yeah. which is shocking. <clears throat> 
Um, so I mentioned earlier that Sky is significantly increasing investment uh, in their original content, and of course you have co-producers as well. Yes. How did that um, work, and could you possibly have done this without the help of all of those producers? No, no, uh, I'm, I'm shocked that we we were able to do it at all. With I mean, <laughs> given what was what we had to face, it was remarkable. But thank God, I mean, we so uh, it, this sort of began initially with myself and Carolyn Strauss, who is another one of our executive producers, um, and then we brought in Jane Featherstone from Sister Pictures, and then the three of us, we, we started with HBO, and then it became clear this was bigger than any one network, and so we reached out to Sky, and they were, they, they rescued us. I mean, they really did, and so this is so much a European production. We're based here in London. We do all of our post-production here in London. All of our prep was in Lithuania, and we shot in Lithuania, we shot in Latvia, a little bit in Ukraine. Um, but it's, it's a story about Europe. It takes place in Europe. Uh, Carol and I are the only Americans allowed. Uh, <laughs> Zana Volenberg uh, is our producer and our kind of you know mastermind on the ground. Um, so we couldn't have done it without any of those people, but Sky in particular has just been uh, remarkable. And, and I, as, as the foreigner, I, I must say that I'm, I'm, I'm in love with the way television is made here in the United Kingdom. I'm in love with the actors. I, think, I, I just think they're wonderful, and I love the way that they are trained and the skills that they bring to things. And I love the way uh, work is performed here, and I love what matters. I love what, what matters. I, 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 I would love to move here if you could just, <laughs> okay, just make up your take, mind. Take care of the one thing. <laughs> take care we're, of the one thing. We're on it. It's fine. Thank you. It's all going to be fine. Thank you. Um, thank you. I, we have time for questions from the audience. There are going to be microphones going up and down. Would you be starting over there? Would be great. My name is Tim Evans, and uh, I'm a professor now of political economy in North London. But in the very early 1990s. I was the Prime Minister's chief advisor in Slovakia, in the former Czechoslovakia. And one day, a rather mysterious report came across my desk, which was uh, an Austrian-led independent report on our nuclear power station in a place called Nitra. And I discovered in the next hour that followed that our power plant at Nitra was identical to the Soviet model at Chernobyl. As I ran through the report and the risks that this power plant carried in 1991-1992, my buttocks became increasingly clenched. What I would like to say to you is, for anyone familiar with the entire socialist Soviet space, from the late 80s right through, quite frankly, to the early 1990s, as the whole area was in transition, you have all achieved the most mind-boggling success in terms of your attention to detail of political atmospherics, but even down to things like which level of person had the Zill motor car? <laughs> Who had the Lada? Oh, so glad. The orange telephone, the design of walls, chandeliers. Oh my goodness, that's it wonderful. It really <laughs> was perfect. I mean, this is. And I have did never. Did you bring him, Johan? <laughs> I, I mean, this is like a dream I just want to congratulate us. you. I'm grateful that the power plant at Nitra never did that. Yeah. 
But Has I really congratulate me? you. And my me? last thing is, I believe the new work on Chernobyl is by Kate Brown. Yes, Kate Brown. And Correct. she has actually gone through all the official archives. KGB archives. In, yeah. Particularly in the Ukraine. Yep. Which, of course, the Soviet system forgot that they've left in their archives. Very Soviet. They'd yep. overplanned it. Yep. But she has now brought out for the first time, I believe, in her new book, all the statistics and facts around this. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention that. Thank you. Thank I have no so idea much. if she's here, but it's an important piece of work. That is, that is, thank uh, you. Th I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, hi, Tim Oglethorpe, freelance journalist. Uh, I understand you filmed at the nuclear power plant, or the former nuclear power plant in um, Lithuania, which yes. was the sister station of the one that, at, uh, of Chernobyl. I wonder what that was like to film at. Was it eerie? Was it... Was it atmospheric? Can you give me some idea of what it was like to film there, if indeed? I mean, the I'll, I'll turn it over. To, I'll just tell you before I turn it over to Johan because he was, you know, really moving the camera around. But it was difficult. Um, they are in the middle of uh, for Lithuania to gain entry into the EU. They had to agree to decommission that plant, and so they are currently in the process of decommissioning it. I think they mentioned at some point that they had already decommissioned it, but yet we couldn't shoot one day because they were removing stuff out of it, which sounds like they're still decommissioning it, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, you hand your, it's, it's, not, it's not a normal shoot day when you show up at work and hand your passport over and they keep it, you know? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was pretty intense and, and yeah, very eerie. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I mean, it's, I, I thought also after, you know, spending all these months and reading Craig's script and getting my head around it and all of that, and then when, when, when you once sort of sit in that fucking minivan uh, <laughs> approaching uh, the plant, it's, it's like you really feel sort of, uh, it's the sort of the casing of Cthulhu or something. The, 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 the building is, is massive, it's eerie, it's, it's windowless. And, you know, every, every time we came back, we obviously went a lot of times for scouting and stuff like that. I, I felt the same every time, these tremendously, <coughs> eternally long corridors. And, and everything is preserved. Everything, you know, it's, it's like you say, it is a sister plant for Chernobyl. It was built very much around the same time. So everything in there, you know, put you quite close to what you would imagine it would have been, you know, there. But yeah, I, all of that, eerie, as very much eerie. And how about the three of you? Would you echo those feelings? Did, did it feel eerie to you? I didn't, did I? She really did. Well, you two guys were, yeah. were walking yeah. around the, the, yeah. the ground. I remember the day when they said that, uh, uh, they said, oh, no, there's no nuclear material there at all. And then on that particular day, he said, well, you can't come here until after 3 o'clock. <laughs> Why is that? He goes, well, because we're moving nuclear material. <laughs> but the and scene then, yeah. of, of, the, of the two of them on the roof with the helicopters, that shot at Ignalina. That's, that, oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right there. It's also the size of it is just shocking. Yeah. The scope of these. these you went, uh, I went to Chernobyl. And when you are at Chernobyl and you're walking maybe in building three, which is as far as you can get, obviously, you start to realize, oh, I kind of begin to understand how one of these reactors could explode. And in your mind, you think, well, it's something else. Because it's almost, it, it's like it's too big to fail. The size of it is astonishing. These buildings are enormous. The thought that something inside it could turn on you just seems beyond the pale. 
One, one, you mentioned the word eerie. One fact I found really eerie, I believe I'm right, is that the scene where the um, guards were all taking their uniforms off and dumping them in the hospital, they're still there, and they're still yeah. radioactive, and they're still in the basement of the hospital. Correct. Yeah. You cannot walk around the basement of the hospital freely, um, and if and there is video of people, you know, with protection holding. And it's interesting because you walk around, they'll hold up a uh, dosimeter to something, and it's like mildly radioactive, mildly radioactive. Very radioactive, just like a little heel of a boot has a little piece of fuel in it. Hi, Emma. Um, I'm Alex Farber from Broadcast Magazine. Um, I wanted to ask about language. Um, obviously, you talk about the drive for authenticity, and it feels like there's growing appetite for audiences to watch shows that are in local languages. So I wonder how you came to the decision to make it in English and perhaps when you feel it might be appropriate for shows to be made in local languages? Well, from my point of view, any, any country that wants to make a show in its own language should, should do so. Um, it's obviously a little trickier when you're making a show and you're thinking about making it in a language that isn't local to you, um, in part because you then have to ask about performance. I mean, to me, it's not a question of jingoism or nationalism or because obviously it would have I mean on one level you want to be as authentic as you can I mean as the gentleman said we've got it down to the chandeliers and the kinds of tires on the cars but if we are to make it in a language we are narrowing ourselves to people that speak that language and we don't so right off the bat there's a little bit of a disconnect there um, and we felt not only did we feel that we wanted to get Performance, performances and performers that we could connect with and so move them through the story together. But we even, in talking about accents, felt like we didn't want to mess around with any of that either, really, and just speak in a way that felt natural to you because in the end, the language should disappear. It's why we will occasionally use Russian in the show and hope, in a sense, it just sort of disappears. There's no translation for the poem at the beginning of episode two, but you kind of have a sense of it in, a in the strangest way. There's no translation for what the woman is saying uh, during the evacuation, but you kind of have a sense of it. And that, and that to me, is, is kind of what we're hoping to do, is, is create as little friction as possible between our audience and the material. And for better or worse, Eng English has become, I would say, the lingua franca, except now it's the lingua angla. Well, it's, it's a long tradition. I mean, you talked about Shakespeare before. Hamlet isn't in Danish, is it? <laughs> I could have just said that. <laughs> that's brilliant. Scott, that's a great point. I never thought of that. And it just leaves me to say thank you so much once again to our extraordinary panel. Um, Craig, to Dylan, to Emily, to Jared, and to Jane. Thank you.